0: This is the EWN Podcast Network.
1: You are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Sharon Hennefin. Sharon is a survivor of stage two breast cancer and wow, what a journey! Sharon, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Okay, before we get to your story and how you've walked through that and found your gift, you're doing the coolest thing. I can't even say where you're from now because you're originally from Oregon, correct? Right, right, right. <laughs> and then you decided, you and your husband decided you were going to go on an adventure. Tell me about that. Do you want to tell me about that first or do you want to tell me about your backstory first?
2: Oh, that's fine. We can, we can talk about that. Yeah, I, uh, About a year ago, we decided to sell our place in Oregon and uh, move into a fifth wheel. So by September, October, that's what we did. And we have uh, relocated to Northern California in the backyard of my son-in-law and his children, so my grandkids. And so it's quite an adventure. Um, We didn't expect to be stuck (laughs) in one place, uh, shelter in place. But uh, you know, it's been fine. It's been great. We've, we've enjoyed the time with the family and um, uh, we're just making the best of it. So our, our intention is to do some traveling. So we will do that.
1: And I love that. I think it's such an adventure. I've always thought, oh, whatever, love to get a fifth wheel and just travel around North America and just visit friends. And it just sounds so cool. We'll get back to the cool part and maybe not the cool part about it. I don't know if there's not a cool part. We kind of, we kind of touched on it before we started recording. Uh, Sharon, tell me about your journey with breast cancer.
2: Well, um, back uh, many years ago, 26 years actually, um, I, was, uh, four, I had just turned 40 and I found my own lump and uh, poked around at it for a couple of days and decided I better go get it checked. It didn't feel right. So I went ahead and uh, made my appointment. And so that following Tuesday, I uh, met with my um, uh, doctor, and I remember laying on the, the uh, exam table, looking up into his eyes, and it was just one of those things where he, his words were telling me, oh, it's fine, it's nothing, right? Um, but let's just get it out of there just to make sure. But I'm looking into his eyes, And his eyes did not tell me that. So I kind of knew right from the beginning. So that was a Tuesday. The following Tuesday, I had a lumpectomy. Unfortunately, it did not. uh, It was cancer and there were not clean margins. So I ended up going in a week after that. So seven days later, I had a complete mastectomy and reconstruction, you know, the starting of it where they place the inflators. And that started this crazy journey, as you can well imagine, I ended up having six surgeries total, I ended up having um, six months of chemotherapy, and yeah, it just kind of rocks your world. It actually reminds me of this um, virus, because, um, you know, you're always worried about getting germs, because your immune system is so, is so compromised when you're going through that. So it's, uh, yeah, quite a journey.
1: And frightening times. And not only that, you had uh, three children, young, relatively young children at the time of that diagnosis, didn't you? Yeah,
2: yeah. my youngest was nine, um, and uh, and actually, she's going through cancer right now.
1: So she's thirty-five.
2: She'll be thirty-six next month. So,
1: yeah, scary oh times for sure. And so, when she, when your daughter got that diagnosis, uh, twenty years later was it 20 years later or 23 years later or whatever, what did that do to you as a mom and as a survivor? It must've been so frightening.
2: Oh, it was uh, very, very frightening because unfortunately hers was, mine was estrogen positive um, and progesterone positive. And uh, hers was triple negative, which was very bizarre. and um, uh, which is a, a little more rare kind of cancer as well as a little more difficult to treat. So um, yeah, it was very scary for for both of us, I'm sure. But unfortunately, because I knew so much about, you know cancer and and all of that, yes, I'm sure that um, it was a little more scary for me just because, but but again, to, to her credit, I mean, she's been obviously active in my journey and, and you know, what I have done in the last, you know, 20 some years. So, you know, she, she knew how it affected me too. So,
1: yeah. And just because you're her mom, I mean, um, here's the thing is you, you've kind of made it sound like that journey was very easy. I'm certain it was not. What was the gift that came out of that after all that chaos had calmed down? Because how long did that chaos take, Sharon? Like, you had to go through a grieving period, I'm sure.
2: Well, you know, the funny thing about that is I went back to work after, you know, uh, finishing my surgeries and everything and the healing process. So I was actually off 11 months And I remember going back to work thinking, I don't know if I can even do this anymore. And the reality was, I, um, uh, you know, back then they didn't really talk about chemo brain and how it affects you cognitively. And so that was a very big concern. Plus, when you are off that long and you're dealing with those uh, medical issues, your stamina is really um, compromised. And so here I had a full-time job that I had to jump back into when, when I wasn't feeling a hundred percent yet um, physically, let alone emotionally. And being perfectly honest, I pretty much stuffed most of the emotions and just, you know, just did what you needed to do, put one foot in front of the other and, you know, not make it affect every day of my life with my kids and all of that. So you jump back into work and then you're really uh, struggling. And again, I didn't really tell anybody I was struggling. And you just do the best you can, right? Well, the funny thing was my doctor um, actually asked me if I could talk to some of his patients. And because he was a plastic surgeon, you know, they were dealing with the whole mastectomy reconstruction concept. And um, and, until you actually go through it, you have no idea, especially back then. Now they have books and you can kind of see results. But back then they really didn't. And so um, my doctor asked me if I wouldn't mind meeting with a few of these ladies. And I was happy to do that. And so I jumped right into that. And the funny thing was, you know, they would never ask me what my results actually looked like. But that's really what they wanted to know. And so we would talk all around it. And we would finally then get to the uh, kind of close to the end of the conversation. I said, do you want to see what they look like? And so we, we would go to the bathroom in a coffee shop and I'd do a little show and tell. And, you know, it's so funny. They would go Hoo, kind of <laughs> you can you can tell that it, it was kind of a relief that that it wasn't as Um, awful as they had had envisioned. So anyway, the funny thing about those um, situations and then continuing to talk to these ladies, I found I was able to process so many of those emotions that I had not been able to um, with these other ladies. And, you know, just speaking from the heart and being able to be as real as possible and answer their questions the best way I could, as far as, you know, what my experience was um, on my cancer journey. So I found several years later, um, a very good friend of mine was also diagnosed and I went through her journey with her. And when she was finished, a few years after that, we ended up starting an organization to help women deal with their emotional um Ups and downs, if you will, process their emotions. And so this organization was called Breast Friends. It's still going today, 20 years later. And it's
1: making a huge impact on those women that we're serving. And what a gift. And you're absolutely right when you've walked through that journey. And then everyone's is different, of course. But when you walk through that and you're able to, uh, like you say, process with other women that have gone through this, um, you do heal a lot of what your own grief was and your fears and all of that. I mean, that's a beautiful gift. And I have to tell you, that organization, Breast Friends, is just a brilliant name. Uh, because that's <laughs> a, a lot of us, you know, we identify as women with our shapes and our breasts and all of that. And, I, and uh, we had talked about this previously, is when you lose that, that's a big part of who we are as as women physically, so it's fair to grieve that. Yeah. And it can't
2: and it can feel that way. I, I remember going to a retreat and this one woman came and she had this plunging neckline on her on her dress or whatever she was wearing. And I mean it was distracting because here all of us are talking about having you know, reconstruction surgery to just to to try to have something that kind of made you feel and look like you had breasts under your clothes. And here this woman was, well, and she come to find out had like 13 plastic surgeries. So she could look like that. So, you know, but, but unfortunately we say things sometimes and we do minimize for someone their emotions and not intending to, of course, but until you've kind of been in those shirt, shoes, you really don't kind of get that. And uh, so it is important to have a safe place, someone you can really talk to who's been there, who can, who can really understand what your emotions are going through. Because again, your family and even your close friends who've not gone through something like this, they're going to say, Hey, you're doing great. You're, you know, and you feel like crap <laughs> you know, and then you feel bad for feeling like crap. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of a vicious cycle in a way. And we're trying to, you know, be strong for our family and uh, friends, you know, so they don't have to worry about us, but, ultimately we need to to have that safe place and that's what Breast Friends really is offered
1: well and I love that because you know the thing is is that when you're grieving and and there's no time limit to it uh if you're really honoring it and if other people are recognizing that but people do get tired of your grief and they're like oh you know they can't handle um they can't handle that someone else might they don't know what to do with those emotions of someone else they feel quite helpless don't they
2: Yes, yes, completely. And so being, you know, having that safe place somewhere you can yell or you can cry or you can just feel sad. I mean, all of that stuff um, are, uh, those are all very, very important emotions to be able to feel and to um, process and, and just like you were saying grief. I mean, there's that process of grief, you know, denial and, Uh, all the way down to acceptance and there you have to kind of go through that and there's no time frame there's no right or wrong way you can go through the you know uh the the denial and then anger and then back
1: to denial I mean it's crazy yeah that little grief bit is really swirly so now um before we move on to uh where breast friends has taken you uh through the organization I would love for you to tell your story about finding your birth mother. And that was what I loved when we first met each other. It was like, oh, you're adopted? Oh, me too. And it was like, oh, good, there's some common ground. So in 2008, what happened, Sharon?
2: Well, actually, let me go back a little bit further than that. Because in 1996, I actually got my non-ID information from the state of Oregon. And it basically gave me just a little bit of information, but of course, no, ad, no, no name, address, and phone number. But at the very end of this letter, it said that my birth mother had used a fictitious name on my birth certificate. So back then, I'm thinking, oh, great. <laughs> I'm never going to find her, you know? And so fast forward a number of years, And I was getting ready to turn 55. And I knew that my mom was probably, you know, then in her late 70s. And I'm thinking, you know what, if I'm ever going to do, you know, like hire an intermediary to actually open my birth certificate and actually create a search, this is it, you know, kind of do or die. So I went ahead and hired an intermediary. I was actually born in Washington. I lived in Oregon. And um, unfortunately, or, I mean, Oregon has open adoption records now, but Washington did not. And I don't believe s- still does. But anyway, so I went through the process, hired her. She told me, okay, it's going to be three weeks till I get the, uh, the document. She called me up three weeks practically to the day and said, okay, I got your birth certificate, and I found your mom, in one sentence. I was shocked, needless to say, and um, she went on to say that my birth mom had a non-published number, so I needed to write a letter and send a couple of baby pictures to her, then she would send the the documents that uh, needed to be signed for her to open the door. Well, Sitting down, writing that letter was a doozy because this may be my one and only shot to open this door. So I kind of gave it up to God and said, okay, you know, if this is supposed to happen, you know what I need to do. So I just wrote from the heart, sent off the letter. And two weeks later, I got a phone call and said, okay, she's opened the door. So that was a Saturday. I called her and we spoke about 45 minutes. I had uh, luckily she was only about three hours, three and a half hours from me. And so I was able to quickly that Thursday I was going to head to um, Bend where she lives to meet her for the very first time so i'm excited i'm like oh my goodness this is like a whirlwind of emotions as you can well imagine and the next day i get a phone call that said huh i guess you're my sister <laughs> so my brother my half brother had called me and so come to find out he probably lived eh, three miles from my house did
1: never know that. Oh my God. You know, this I love, you know, we need to do another podcast on the whole adoption feeling. Cause I, I mean, I could share lots of you do on that, but then to find out that you have siblings, I, I didn't, I didn't find, I never had any other siblings, but to find out that sibling and that he lived right around the corner. That's just yeah. crazy to me. Crazy. And are you Are you still in contact with all of them?
2: Yes, most of them. Um, some you know that's that's the thing when you go into an adoption you know f- natural family, whatever you want to call it reveal <laughs> if you will. Um, everybody goes into it with different expectations and um, sometimes they're not gonna be um, with open arms and you have to be ready for all of that and that, so for, for younger people who are going through this, especially when you really haven't lived a lot of life and understand some of those things, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's especially difficult. Luckily, I, I kind of knew my intermediary had, um, had me uh, read this fabulous book about adoptions, you know, pre uh, Roe v. Wade. And, you know, the women were told don't talk about it. Don't think about it. Pretend it never happened. So for, for people to even open the door um, at that point is, is a pretty tough order um, because they are then faced with their demons, you know, those worst things that they've, you know, done or thought about or, you know, whatever. And, um, and so it's a tough, um, it's a, it's a tough thing for them. So, 2008, that's when this reveal happens. I ended up uh, going over to band with this brother, and we drove together nonstop talking, as you can well imagine. And he's (laughs) such a girl in such a way. He he carried on his part of the conversation without any trouble. And uh, on our way, he goes, oh, by the way, uh, your sister Vicky, who lives in Northern California is meeting us along the way. <laughs> so we pull over right before we get to um, my birth mom's home. And uh, I literally jump out of the car, give her a hug, jump back in the car. <laughs> and we just keep on going. And we ended up meeting. Um, it ended up being her, my birth mom, her sister, her, uh, the sister. So my aunt daughter so a niece and then the two siblings and myself so it was quite a little party we all brought pictures and just you know talked and talked and talked for hours and then my brother sister and I ended up staying at Eagle Crest for the night so we had you know coffee in our jammies and wine that night and we were able to you know continue those conversations and then I saw um my birth mom and her sister the next day again and compared notes and, you know, things like that. So yeah, it was great. It was great. But now it's what 11, 12 years later, almost. Um, and I still have a a really nice relationship with my birth mom. The sad part is she really doesn't have a relationship with any of her other kids. And she had five children, including me.
1: Wow. But part of that journey that you shared was that she also had breast cancer.
2: Yes, yes, she and actually her sister had it twice. Luckily, they both survived um,
1: that that illness. You know, they did what they needed to do. And the reason I wanted to ask you about this is when you were first diagnosed at age forty, and then uh, years later, your daughter is. And then was there a weird. Connection you had with her because it uh, clear is it a fam, it clearly is a familial thing that's I don't know a better word than say thing but help me here
2: <laughs> yeah the, the genetic part of it um, oh, that's the word actually, yeah but actually when my daughter was was um, tested for the genetics because she did have a strong actually on both sides um, her father. Um, uh, his mom and his grandma passed from breast cancer. So Chelsea's grandma and great grandma, and there were a few other people. So it was a strong family history on both sides. But she, I didn't have the gene, like the BRCA gene and all of that. And neither did she. But unfortunately, when hers came back, which was very weird. She actually had a, a little thing come up in her back and they checked that. And when they checked that, it actually, her body didn't have the BRCA gene, but her tumor that came back on her back was considered
1: BRCA1. Weird. Very weird. I, I yeah. never um, heard of
2: that happening. So, you know, um, and-, and 20 some years of being in kind of very close proximity (laughs) with a lot of women who've gone through breast cancer. That was a new one for me, for sure. And um, so I'm not sure what that really means completely. Um, My, my daughter always thought she had some Jewish blood in her. (laughs) I think it kind of came true. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Is that funny?
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, the thing that, the thing that I love about your story is um, that you not once in this podcast, have you ever made it all about the breast cancer? You have a very uh, rich story of experiences and the breast cancer just happens to be one of them. I I think, I don't know if you realize that, uh, and I'm I'm likely you do because you've worked and we're going to go on about what you've done uh, overseas, but. What I, I love is that you don't make it all about that breast cancer. It's just one part of the blip on your journey. I don't mean to diminish that experience by calling no, it a blip, but you know what no, I mean.
2: I, I actually appreciate that because um, I'm also a life coach and I've talked to women you know, a lot about that. And again, you know, it is definitely a part of me. It changed my life in so many ways. I mean, that corporate job that I went to Um, when I was first, you know, recovering from all that treatment, uh, it was so obvious that it didn't fit anymore. And it wasn't just because of the chemo brain. (laughs) Um, It it just wasn't fulfilling any longer. And it's funny when you do go through something as serious as a, as a a breast cancer diagnosis and treatment and the aftermath that goes with that. It's interesting how it, it changes how you look at things. It changes your values. It changes how, you know, what's important to you. And, um, and so the fact that, yes, I use that experience, but it isn't like my identity, if you will, you know, it's not like who I am in the world.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. That take, you take the emotion, of the experience and that's where your gift lies is that you're able to bring it forward uh, in order to help other women that are traveling that path. And that's where the beauty of, you know, I don't know, Sharon, that a lot of uh, people get that in whatever their journey is, whether it's cancer or anything, is exactly. sometimes they, they kind of start to just wallow in their own poo, I always love to say, and they yeah. never really look for the gift. So yeah. we're going to just take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to talk about your uh, your work in uh, Tasmania. You are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Sharon Hennepin.
0: Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this, You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula. Covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details.
1: You are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Sharon Hennefin. So Sharon, let's move forward here through the breast friends and the journey it took you to underserved countries and what that did and maybe what the differences were in navigating the healthcare system in in the US and in these other countries. Because that's yeah. so fast, it's so fascinating to me.
2: Oh, thank you. Well, you know, it's funny. I loved my work at Breast Friends. I mean, it was very, very rewarding. It was hard because, unfortunately, we do lose women of this disease, and you many times have created a, an amazing connection. Um, sometimes these women share things with with us that they don't even share with anyone else, and so it's a pretty amazing connection. But. That being said, um, the re- reality is people still die from this disease, no matter how wonderful the, the treatment is and how wonderful the excuse me the early de- detection is, we still die from this disease. So my job basically at Breast Friends was I was the program person. So I would create the programs. If I saw a hole or a gap, I would try to um, create a, a program that would Um, facilitate that and my love is also facilitating and educating and um, so I ended up doing a workshop called Thriving Beyond Cancer as well as a retreat which was just so much fun but also so rewarding and helpful for the ladies because in a very safe space um, this small group of women we usually had eight women that would go on these retreats They would embrace each other and share their stories and the differences and the similarities and, you know, being able to talk about very tough conversations, you know, death and dying and being afraid of it coming back and um, the potential of, you know, affecting their sex life for the rest of their life and all of these different things, really tough topics. But we walked away. Uh, best friends, and just, it's it's just an amazing experience. So I did that for, oh gosh, 12 years, something like that, and uh, loved that. That was part of the life coaching and, you know, using those skills to really help people um, get through their emotions. And, you know, I I was turning 65, and uh, we started talking about that transition plan to actually uh, turn over the reins to um, the people that uh, worked with us. And so I uh, was doing that on a very um, concentrated level. So um, I didn't want Breast Friends after, <laughs> after all these years to, to stumble after I left or after Becky left. And so we started through that process and it became uh, glaringly obvious there really wasn't a place for me any longer. And that was okay, because I was at that place as well. So I went ahead and made that tough decision last August to uh, resign from the board and to um, stop my day-to-day working at Breast Friend's and that was part of this transition that um, moving into a fifth wheel and moving to California and all of this so it was a lot of change all at one time I have to admit but it was good change and I felt very comfortable with the with the team who um, has taken over in our places so that being said also one of the things that happened so last February um, a friend of mine who's an RN who has been very supportive of Breast Friends throughout the years contacted me and we had breakfast and she was telling me all these cool things she was doing and I'm just like, wow, I, have, Wow! why are you telling me so much detail? Because she was really getting down into the you know nitty gritty stuff. And I said, so what does that mean to me? And she's like, I want you to help me with this. And I'm like, oh, goodness, okay. So we had lots of conversations and decided that she'd been doing this all on her own dime and that we needed to create a, um, an infrastructure of a nonprofit for her. And so we started Breast Advocates International, which is an organization that's basically teaching women how to do breast self exams clinical breast exams and the navigation tools that they need to be able to get through the healthcare wherever they are. So, um, she's been to, um, Palestine and Malawi, um, twice now. And we unfortunately had to cancel my first trip to Malawi, which would have been in March because of the coronavirus. But, um, the great thing is, since she's been there twice, even though we didn't make this particular trip, those women are still doing the work in Malawi, which is wonderful. So they're um, helping the, the village people that the um, there's, no, there's no mammograms in, in that kind of environment. In the rural environment, there's unsteady, unstable electricity. So they don't have the capabilities of having early detection like we know it here in the state. And since I found my lump, and I know probably 50% of the people that I uh, talked to found a lump, and then they would go in and have the mammogram, and then they would decide if it was in fact cancer or not. So a lot of us, even in the United States, find our own lump. Maybe it's accidental. Maybe we actually are doing our self-breast exams. But either way, we're finding those lumps, maybe in the shower or other ways. And unfortunately, the women there, they don't even have the knowledge to know that that could be something that could kill
1: them eventually. Oh, my gosh. That, that's so powerful to hear that because we're so lucky to be in this corner of the world or part of the world and have that knowledge. What did that do to you when you first realized that?
2: Well, it makes me completely grateful. That's for sure. For, you know, I mean, we have our, our issues here in the United States, but goodness gracious, it's, it's crazy to think that other places don't have um, a healthcare system set up that where, where early detection is even possible. And so, and and I found too, um, even though I haven't had cervical cancer, um, that is a huge killer in those countries as well, because of the um, HPV virus that um, is responsible for so much of the cervical cancer in countries like that. And so... That kill. Uh, I think what was the what was the number I heard? It was like it was like nine women a day in Malawi alone die of cervical cancer. So that's a whole another um, education piece that needs to be talked uh, about in those countries because the use of condoms and safe sex or hopefully even getting the vaccine eventually to those younger people before they start their um, intimate lives. And so it's it's an interesting dilemma, um, certainly in those countries. Even the food, I was talking to a, a lovely woman from Malawi, and she was saying that there's not as many older women, like I was asking her was there a familiar connection uh, with her cancer? Because she's actually a two-time survivor herself. And she said, no, there's really not. And there's not a lot in the older population in the, in the bigger cities. It's places like McDonald's, I hate to say, the, fa- the American diet that has come to places like that. That's actually causing the biggest problem.
1: It, I think that's right, and you know that fast food bit. I, I, you know, I mean, I had a friend here who had uh, breast cancer, and and she has no familial, there's no hereditary link, nothing. And uh, her doctor said, you know, it's environment, and and that's what we're fighting against now is the environment, and and that yeah. is so frightening, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is. There's a lot. There's a lot that needs to be done
2: in our country, but also in others, because. They have the opportunity to not, I guess, glorify it in those other countries, but you know, unfortunately, big business and money—you know how that goes.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know what's interesting now with um, with the whole COVID uh, nineteen going on, it has really brought that whole piece into it where we are now, you know, talking about being in this part of the world versus in Malawi where they don't have necessarily um, the education to know that they can ask for these things and that they can do these things. What COVID has done, I mean, that difference is circumstance. Now COVID has taken away circumstance because we are now on the same page. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when you were saying earlier about you know, these things that are that are happening, there there's a, a lot of parallels between what our journeys are and COVID. Now we're we're all in we're all facing something we're not we're afraid of. We don't understand. We're not sure what the outcome's going to be. So it really does tie it all in together that we really are just the same no matter where. Isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. Well what I love about your story and your journey is that the work that you've done, but you've walked through lots of pain personally and with other cancer survivors and not survivors, sadly. There's been a lot of connection, I feel, that you've made with people that's so important to do, Sharon, because when people are grieving, they're so lost that the connection with another human being is so important to know that there's a little bit of hope, whether it turns out to be the best case scenario or not you've managed to give another human being some hope and I think the gift in all of this is that we need to take control don't we
2: oh absolutely and and again
1: you know like we were talking
2: earlier about like making cancer your like identity sort of thing and and realizing that you are you are strong with or without that that diagnosis Um, and being able to find the positive, even in the crummiest situations, whether it's cancer or COVID or whatever you're dealing with, you know, because this this virus, for instance, is is bringing ahead many things, whether it's, you know, you're getting closer in your marriage or maybe you're getting farther apart, you know, you're, there's, there's blessings in all of it. If we look hard enough and I think that's the lesson really in in all of this
1: absolutely I love that you said that and you know and to your point of selling everything in your home and uh, from Oregon and getting into a fifth well you know while that sounds really romantic that's a pretty powerful move to make because (laughs) (laughs) well I love it personally I would love to be able to do that I think (laughs) you know in theory it sounds like fun but the thing is is that You have figured out what's important.
2: Well, and the crazy thing about that, honestly, Helen, is is that you don't need much. And I think that was the biggest learning from that process. I would literally look at something that I was having like an emotional attachment to and say to myself, do I want to pay to store this? No, I don't. So then I could let it go. Oh, we had this, the coolest thing happen actually. We had um, a couple of things on Craigslist and actually we were giving a a, a lot of stuff away. And so we had um, a desk that we were giving away on Craigslist. And this absolutely amazing man and his son came to our home and he told us his story. He was from Jordan he and his six children and his wife came to the US for whatever reason his wife decided to leave him and take the girls. He was left with the boys and he was having to start all over again and you know create an environment for his boys so they could do their homework so they could you know create a, a warm space we ended, up giving him, we ended up giving him like three lamps and two rugs and two desks. <laughs> I mean, it was the it was the coolest thing, and it
1: felt so good because we didn't need that stuff anyway. I love that because. Whenever you have to start over, uh, you are creating a new you, a new life, whatever that looks like. And if a three lamps are important to another person so he can educate his kids or whatever the reason he needs those three lamps, I love that. And it doesn't yeah. mean when you, say, when you say, you know, you don't need much. Absolutely right. And I think that it comes down to each individual to decide what is it that I need. Yes.
2: Yes. And for him, those things were so important and they meant nothing other than, you know, we need, we wanted to eventually get rid of most of those things. And, you know, it would have been nice to get a little money out of them, but honestly, they had served their purpose in our life. And so it felt so good to be able to um, help him rebuild his life with
1: his boys. Oh my gosh. You know, I think, we could probably talk for hours and hours, sharing You're super <laughs> interesting and so positive. And I have to tell you, you uh, there is no way I would have guessed you at sixty-six, just saying. So oh, I think, <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that comes in, I think that comes whatever sixty-six looks like, you know. Right? Yeah, but yeah, you know, yeah. the thing <laughs> is, is that whatever is your whatever brings your beauty about is so comes from your internal being. I love that. You are so caring and giving because you could have gone another way. Uh, you know that whole adoption thing. You know the the cancer thing with your daughter, with your mother, with your aunt. All of those things. You could have chosen to walk a different path, and I love that you chose to walk that path in, to help women all over the world. It's a, and it's an absolutely beautiful story. I can't wait to see what's next for you in the next ten years. I really think you should write a book about living in a fifth will during COVID. <laughs> With your husband,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would probably be a good, at least a good chapter. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and that's what it's all about, right? I mean, our journey is about our chapters and how they yep. all come together at some point with the experiences and what you want to choose to take out of that. I love that part of it, Sharon. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I uh, really have enjoyed getting to know you. And I'm sure there's going to be some times we're going to be chatting again. I'd love that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, good luck with your journey with COVID. Stay safe. I'm glad you're near your kids. Um, I want to hear more about your fifth wheel life. Okay. Uh, (laughs) And uh, stay safe. You have been listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. To learn more about Helen's journaling retreats, speaking engagements, and life coaching, or to sign up for her newsletter, please visit HelenRose.ca.
0: Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.